2: Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episode covers the North Man, Robert Eggers' bloody Viking revenge saga. But even if you aren't ready to subscribe, you can still follow the Patreon for your Next Picture Show bonus mini recommendations and Feedback Friday posts will respond to your thoughts and questions. Those posts are open to the public and we hope you'll engage and ask questions. You can find it all at patreon.com slash next picture show. That's patreon.com slash next picture show.
3: It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. You believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being we may be through with the past but the past is not through with us
2: welcome to the next picture show a movie that we podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm keith phipps here with
0: genevieve Koski,
2: scott tobias
0: and tasha robinson
2: for our latest pairing we're looking at two films starring one actor in four roles Both films reflect on the business of filmmaking and storytelling from different angles. Genevieve, can you tell us about the pairing we'll be exploring in our next two episodes?
1: Sure. This week, we're discussing Adaptation, the second collaboration between writer Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones, following being John Malkovich, which we talked about in a previous episode. The film stars Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman, a screenwriter struggling with the seemingly impossible assignment of turning New Yorker writer Susan Orlean's nonfiction book The Orchid Thief into a screenplay. Cage co-stars opposite Meryl Streep as Orlean, Chris Cooper as an eccentric Florida orchid hunter, and himself as Donald Kaufman, Charlie's far less tortured and far more comfortable identical twin. Then, next week, we'll bring in The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a new Nicolas Cage film in which he plays a fictionalized version of a real-life figure, in this case, Nicolas Cage, a down-on-his-luck movie star haunted by his younger self, who takes a seemingly easy job making a personal visit to a wealthy superfan.
2: So a podcast about pairings becomes a podcast about films about pairings, at least for the next two episodes. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back after a short break. Coffee would help me think. Coffee and a muffin. I'm going up to Santa Barbara this Saturday, and I I was wondering. Oh. I'm sorry. So I'll just
1: be right back with your pie then.
2: Drum roll, please. I'm gonna be a screenwriter. Like you! I'm putting in a chase sequence. So the killer flees on horseback, cops after them on a motorcycle. And it's like a battle between motors and horses. Like technology versus horse.
0: Susan, we would really like to option this. You
3: wanna make it into a movie? I wanna know what it feels like to
0: care about something
1: passionately. LaRoche is a
3: tall guy,
1: sharply handsome.
2: The book has no story. There's no story. Make one up. Okay, we open with LaRoche. No, we open at the beginning of time. Okay, we open with LaRoche.
1: Crazy white man. We open on Charlie Kaufman. Fat, bald, ugly paces. No! I've written myself into my screenplay. That's kind of weird, huh?
2: Charlie Kaufman had a thing for doubles and strikingly different brothers well before he wrote Adaptation. Speaking to writer Mike Ryan for An Oral History of the Dana Carvey Show, a sketch comedy program that doubled as an incubator for talent during its short mid-90s run, Robert Carlock recalled Kaufman working on a Weird Al Yankovic-inspired sketch that never made it past the writing stage. A few years later, Kaufman described the sketch in greater detail to Ryan, quote, There was Weird Al Yankovic, Weirder Al Yankovic, Weirdest Al Yankovic, and I'm not sure I may be making this part up, then there was Regular Al Yankovic and they were just named that by their parents. One of them would do a parody of the other one doing the other one, and then the third one would turn it back into the regular song, unquote. Though that sketch never saw the light of day, it's a quintessential Kaufman idea. Funny, cerebral, but also a little melancholy, depicting characters locked in a cycle of creativity, mutation, and dissatisfaction they can't escape. If we take adaptation to be at least a little bit autobiographical, it's a cycle Kaufman understood pretty well. Opening with behind-the-scenes footage of being John Malkovich in which Kaufman, played by Nicolas Cage, shrinks unnoticed to the margins of his own creation, adaptation depicts a man seemingly determined to undo his own success and sabotage his life in spite of his talent. His agent Valerie, played by Tilda Swinton, is thrilled to be working with a writer of Kaufman's caliber. Coffin's this close to embarking on a relationship with Amelia, played by Kara Seymour, a woman who seems to care about him in spite of the distance he keeps putting between them, and he can't get anywhere with the plum assignment of adapting a book he loves, Susan Orlean's The Orchid Thief. I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing, Coffin tells Valerie over a sweaty lunch. That means not making it, in his words, an orchid heist movie or, quote, changing the orchids into poppies and changing it into a movie about drug running. It also means not putting in a subplot in which your lean her primary subject, John LaRoche, fall in love or, quote, guns or car chases or characters learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. Life, Kaufman argues, isn't like that. But movies, or at least the sort of movies that Hollywood makes, are like that. Charlie's brother Donald gets that, even if Charlie doesn't. Unencumbered by Charlie's sense of artistic purity and doubt, Donald decides to follow in his brother's footsteps and become a screenwriter. So he takes a class from screenplay guru Robert McKee, concocts an idea involving serial murders and multiple personalities, and he's off to the races. It's really not that hard when you think about it. Or maybe it's just hard because you think about it. As Charlie's personal life nosedives, his attempts to bring Orlean's book to the screen don't fare much better. This doesn't mean he's not full of ideas. These include taking the film back to the origins of life itself and making fascinating characters of both Orlean and LaRoche, a serial obsessive scarred by sadness and loss. But how do you fit all that into a movie, much less a movie determined not to play by traditional movie rules? Maybe you can't. After bottoming out, Charlie seeks out McKee, played by Brian Cox, even though he previously dismissed his teaching. Charlie then brings in Donald for the film's third act which features sex, forbidden love, car chases, drugs, profound life lessons, and characters overcoming to succeed in the end. Sort of. If Charlie doesn't succeed by the time Happy Together plays over the final scene, you wouldn't have just watched a film called Adaptation, which the opening credits assure us is adapted from the book The Orchid Thief and written by both Charlie and Donald. But did he also fail by surrendering to what's expected of movies? Do movies demand that kind of failure? Maybe regular Al Yankovic always ultimately triumphs over his weirder brothers. But maybe there's something kind of profound and meaningful about what we need from stories inherent in that triumph. We might have just seen a movie with a happy ending or an extremely cynical one. If Charlie Kaufman, the one in the movie or the one putting the screenplay, has an answer, he's not telling. Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More a reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir.
1: The real fucking world. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, Nothing happens in the world? Are you out of your fucking mind? People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Every
3: fucking day, somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Every fucking day, someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy
1: someone else. People find love. People lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find
3: that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. And why the fuck are you wasting my two precious hours with your movie?
2: I brought up a bunch of questions in the keynote, including whether or not this movie has a happy ending. So let's start there. Does this movie have a happy ending, guys? (laughs) Wow, what a
0: question! Uh, do you have a brother, uh, Keith, who you maybe hate and wish was dead?
2: Well, there is there is, apart from all right. So apart from the whole Donald dying and the Coffin's mother being very very sad, there is it ends on a note that Charlie might have a new chance for a fresh start. That he might himself might be adapting to the environment of of working in Hollywood. That he might be getting his act together in his personal life.
1: He gets the girl.
2: <laughs> he maybe gets the girl it's it's yeah. it's, un, it's unclear but i but, think uh, he super
0: doesn't get the girl but he gets the courage to try mm-hmm. and the fact that as a result he doesn't get the girl i think is actually one of one of many bold moves in a movie made up almost entirely of bold moves
1: sure
2: yeah but uh, so the ending what do you think
1: i mean i think it's a hopeful ending just and it's Like, right off the bat, we have to, like, get into the meta-ness of of this movie, because, like, the fact that the movie is over, the movie has been completed, is the happy ending, (laughs) you know? Like, this whole movie is about writing this movie that we are seeing, like, the fact that, that Charlie has succeeded in doing the thing that we watched him struggle to do the whole movie is, I guess, the happy ending on a meta level, as far as, like, whether the character of Charlie, as he exists in the film, is happier than he was. Like, yeah, I I mean, I I guess he is. Does that make (laughs) us happy? I don't know. I guess it depends if we are supposed to actually like this character and want anything for him, like on a personal level versus wanting him to like finish writing his movie.
2: I guess the other, the bigger question I'm asking is, is the end, are we still in Donald Kaufman territory? Are we still in the realm of, ah. you know, forced happy endings and obligatory happy endings? Ah. Or, or is this thing a little more, you know, less formulaic from, from the Charlie Kaufman side of the screenplay?
0: Oh, I don't think it's less formulaic. I mean, I think it's an extension of the, the metaness that's going throughout the entire movie. You know, part of the idea here is definitely you want this to be a Hollywood movie. It's, it's got to have action. It's got to have drama. It's got to have sex. It's got to have a DSS machina, which we told you not to use. It's going to have <laughs> voiceover at the end. Uh, and of course, it needs a happy ending. I mean, I think this is an incredibly cynical and bitter happy ending, which is probably as close as Charlie Kaufman is comfortable getting to a a happy ending. But I I do think it's also a gag on the, the Hollywood ending. I mean, his happy ending is that his brother basically sacrifices himself, more or less, for, for his life and his safety. And now he no longer has the competition and the mirror that was showing him a lot of his faults and, and flaws. He has kind of sold out. He doesn't get the girl and he also gets an indication that if he hadn't been so on the fence, if he hadn't been cowardly about speaking up and, and talking to her, he could have had the girl that he cares about, who cares about him. I agree that it's a, a story of hope in the end, that there's sort of a sense of, well, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But I'm not confident that this won't all start up again the next time he gets a, a film assignment, you know? I mean, structurally, it's perfect. It's beautiful. The, the The fact that it's a cynical, false, happy ending is absolutely in keeping with the movie's concepts, with the, the meta conceit, with everything it's saying about screenwriting. Like, I love it. But... I do think it's also still uh, both very bitter and contrived in a way that's making fun of how contrived Hollywood endings usually are.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think he's found his way out of a spot is maybe the best hope for him here and that he's attempted something as a screenwriter, his character has that is it not possible, which is to adapt the orchid thief into a movie. <laughs> so he's solved the problem of doing that and but in solving the problem of doing that, you know he's had had to invent a lot of these devices, introduce a lot of these things that shouldn't be in a good screenplay. and then he finds his way through with an ending that that kind of demonstrates a certain lack of integrity that he himself would be you know sort of repulsed by. So, uh, but it's still so, somewhat hopeful. I mean, I, I don't. I wouldn't. I kind of reject the idea that Coffin, in general, is not is a kind of a downer ending guy. Because I don't really take. I don't really take the ending of being John Malkovich or Eternal Sunshine. I don't take those really as downer endings. There's always a certain amount of hope in those endings and there maybe there's a sliver here as well you know this it's, is it's a, a
0: podcast so people cannot see the absolutely incredulous face that i'm giving you right bad. now scott no, you,
3: you think you, you don't think you think those are just just straight up sad crappy things are going horrible <laughs> endings <laughs>
0: okay i well i super object to the word crappy because uh i i think they're both great endings and no no, they're
3: great endings but i'm just saying they don't but but i mean you would say they're just unalloyed sadness there's just no you you don't feel like there's any kind of because to me to eternal sunshine especially is giving you a whole lot of you know sort of is ending with a quite positive thought i think
0: I think we argued about this extensively when we talked about internal sunshine and <laughs> if people no, if people want that, that argument, that. relitigated rather than spend 20 minutes on that here, we can just point them to that podcast. Mm. Being John Malkovich, I mean, it's a happy ending for everybody except John Cusack's character.
1: Sure.
0: But the fact that John Cusack's character ends the movie, we end with him, you know, scrabbling at the inside of this child's brain. Desperately trying to have any effect whatsoever on the world around him. I think it's a very cruel ending for him, certainly well deserved. Um, and again, certainly very satisfying, but also very, very melancholy and bittersweet as an ending. I'm certainly not saying that there's no hope in either of these endings, but I stand by the original statement, which is, you know, bittersweet and complicated and sad and cynical, maybe as. About as close as Charlie Kaufman is capable of coming to a happy ending.
1: Well, and I think maybe uh, we should uh, look at specifically the very last shot of adaptation, which is that uh, drawn out time lapse of the flowers kind of opening and closing while it's it's happy together, right? P- place mm-hmm. at, at, at mm-hmm. the end, you know. Which, like, I think that that is a a sincere ending. Like, I don't think that is sort of the the trite Hollywood uh, ending that. Uh, Charlie slash Donald wrote to the the Orchid Thief, you know, <laughs> like, I think that that is the ending to this movie. And it I guess it's bittersweet. But it more kind of strikes me as a a glimpse of the movie that Charlie set out to make at the beginning, you, you know, that the movie that he wanted to make that was about something big, you know, like, there's earlier in the movie, uh, we get that sort of him conceiving and then we do see like the sequence of like the entire history of the earth, <laughs> you know, uh <laughs> leading up to his conception. And so that ending shot kind of felt like a little bit of a callback to that, like a an acknowledgement of a like sort of something bigger and universal and and beautiful but in a simple flower.
3: Yeah. Well, I mean I almost almost wouldn't say big so much as ineffable, right? Of just mm. like what how do you make a movie about a flower, you know? I mean, I, it, what do you do to kind of capture the essence of that thing which is just, you know, so incredibly elusive i mean the you know as elusive as of course the ghost orchid here i mean just you know i I think that's kind of uh, so so then you know that sequence at the beginning where where he's going back to the dawn of time you know it's almost kind of like this comical reach of just like okay i need to find Mm -hmm. some splashy you know original uh, way to Mm -hmm. to access something that is really not accessible that movie's are, you know, pretty or at least, you know, a conventional, you know, narrative, you know, commercial movie is incapable of accessing.
2: I think also it's a neat move, though, to show like, you know, this what you you can do this in a movie. You know, you don't see this in a movie and certainly not the movies that that uh, that he's been asked to write or the, the system in which he's asked to to operate. But if you want to go back to the dawn of time in a movie, you can just write it, you know, just write it in the screenplay. <laughs>
0: But also, I mean, it, it's significant. I think that no, this—he literally nobody is asking him to do what he's doing. He's he's trying to redefine what a movie can do. He's trying to, like, in his manic phase, he talks about how he needs to wrap up everything all at once, like the the existence of, of flowers and humanity and possibility and and the past and the future. Nobody's asking him to do that. You know, The Orchid Thief is a a perfectly accessible, deeply interesting story about a very strange and specific individual. And he could have just written a movie like about that guy in his story. Nobody was asking him for this, this giant cosmic consideration of all life. And the fact that his brain is incapable of sitting down and saying, let's write a John LaRouche story. And instead he's got to <laughs> go back to like, You know, the primeval soup is just telling us so much about who Charlie Kaufman is, whether or not this is actually an autobiographical uh, story.
3: But I think that's him, his process too, is kind of questioning, you know, what is the proper adaptation of this book? Because he does have a conversation, I believe, with Tilda Swinton's Mm -hmm. character about things he could make up, little devices he could put in there to make it about larouche and, and i mean he
1: basically describes the third act of the of this movie and that opening conversation with tilda swinton which was something that like i appreciated so much on this <laughs> yeah. rewatch you know yeah, yeah there's a but- ton
0: of that going on here mm-hmm. where so much of the the discussion about what the sh- story should be is foreshadowing about what the story is going to be it's i feel like it Maybe because the special effects aren't as flashy, or the story isn't as much about love as Eternal Sunshine is, I think it's hard. Maybe a little harder to see again how immaculate the structure is here. But the meta folds of this story, in terms of setting things up in advance, just like you know, putting the bowling pins in place and then knocking them down, is is pretty incredible.
2: I like this movie more each time I see it, and I Mm -hmm. see more each time time I see it as well.
3: Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I mean it's it's very complex, and I, I mean and I think there that's kind of been a thing with a lot of Charlie Kaufman's movies because they're just so dense, and you can feel in here, in a meta way, of course, just the torture of putting it together, and in feeling that torture, it may, it takes some time with the film to kind of access it in a way because because you kind of your head sort of swims through it, and it feels very constricted and hard to. You know, sort out. But then you you, know, you watch it multiple times, and not not only do do you get those are those do those strands become clear and seem more elegant. The the um, emotion at the center of the work starts to you know blossom, for lack of a better word, as well.
2: Uh, so you know, we, let's we we went to the very end. Let's let's go back just a little bit to the end of the, the climax, when which Donald, after delivering a Really, I found a – I'll tip my hand here. I found a quite touching description of his life in high school and how he didn't care that the girl he loved didn't love him back because that didn't – that was not his – you know, it didn't change how he felt. And the end of the act of self-sacrifice, I found that really quite touching, but it's also exactly – the ending, you know, as we touched on before that Charlie decided he would never write a self-sacrifice, people kind of understanding, coming to understand one another. And yet it works anyway. Do you find that to be a contradiction? I mean, no, I
1: don't really find any of the third act to be a contradiction. I think it's, it's two, it's two things at once, which is like very appropriate for, for this story, (laughs) you know, like this is like really a really trite way to put this, but like the screenplay is a character you know in in this film more than like any other film like i can i can think of you know and you have to like kind of consider it alongside all the other human characters that we are following in this story so donald's fate like yes i do find it moving because like but on two kind of different seemingly contradictory levels but that that work together because the actual character of Donald that we've spent this movie with, like he, you know, he's goofy, he's naive, but like he is the likable one of the, of the two brothers, like from from the beginning, and he's I think the more enjoyable presence on screen. So just like I think, sort of on a gut character level, you you do. F- Feel the loss of him in that moment, but then it is also, I think, one of several moments at the end where you that it's it's like a penny drop moment, and you see how this came together, and you see how elegant it is, and you know, to Tasha's point about just the the structure of this being so incredible, like it. I think it's moving in that way to just see it kind of crystallize in in this moment, uh, this dual purpose moment.
0: I may have shouted at the screen this time around when Charlie's on the phone with his mom. Uh, the wrong son died, <laughs> you know, <laughs> quoting, <laughs> quoting uh, Walk Hard, because yeah, I mean, I find Donald's death touching. Like he is, you know, within the keeping of the the meta structures of the screenplay. He's sort of Charlie Kaufman's imaginary split personality person in the same way the the cop and the kidnap victim and the killer are all the same person <laughs> Donald and, and Charlie are the same person. It's a it's a fictional device. So you know he is is mom
1: the third one because she's so good with structure. <laughs> you know, that we never see her on
0: screen. It would make an awful lot of sense and it, it would certainly parallel the the structure of the three, which mm-hmm. is not the two.
3: Mom <laughs> calls it psychologically taught.
0: <laughs> <laughs> mom's right it's it's taught I, I, I you know as genevieve says um donald is and i think not just the likable when he's the nice one you know charlie so clearly holds him in contempt for his you know the the banal nature of the stuff that he's creating and you know for his neediness and his his fecklessness his his needing of support but at the same time, he's clearly the kinder of the two. He's not just the, the one that Charlie's jealous of because he can get the girls, despite his pointing out of his uh, push-push-in-the-bush plans. <laughs> he's not just somebody that Charlie's jealous of because of his screenplay success. He's also just The guy that's perpetually apologizing, the guy who wants Charlie to like him, the guy who wants other people to like him, like he's just kinder. He's kinder to other people. He's less caught up in his own self-loathing. And I think his destruction is, is pretty tragic. You know, it's, it's tragic to Charlie because Charlie's not going to have his influence around anymore. And in the end the the story almost ends up with that feeling like, well, you know he doesn't have this burden or this uh judgment in his lap anymore, but I think for the rest of us it's it's a loss, and there is that kind of sense of you know, okay, the cynical self destructive one who isn't doing anybody any good is still with us, but like the guy that seems to have like potential and people who who cared about him besides his brother is gone. Because he, he gave himself up to save his brother, like, in, in the way of, you know, better people, bigger men, as it were. Still sad.
2: Hmm. He's just a big puppy dog of a guy, too. You can see why people want to hang around him. And, you know, people might be initially attracted to to Charlie for his intelligence and, and, and his, uh, um, you know, his, his ideas. But, you know, who do you want to go home with at the end of the night?
3: He reminds me of like he reminds me of William Hurt's character in Broadcast News, though he's mm-hmm. like he's yeah. he's, the, he's the devil, right? Because he lowers our standards a, a tiny little bit. I mean, that's kind of what Donald is. I mean, Donald's a a, a philistine. He's he's uh, you know he, he he he's happy because he doesn't he's not reflective on anything. I mean, I, I don't know, like I, I, you know, I I think it's it's a uh, part of obviously it's part of Charlie. He's this manifestation of charlie but he, but it's a side that uh that he loathes and not for bad reason really i mean this is the, this is a side of somebody who is incurious and is a sellout uh, you know who 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 gives into formula and and uh you know it, it's sort of like committee thing it's like i don't know is- that you
2: can Call him a sellout, though, is the thing, because he never had any principles to sell out. Well, no, but I mean, you know what I mean. But yeah. I mean, he
3: would be—he would be the impulse. He—he he represents kind of the impulse, sure. to go that mm-hmm. easy route um so i you know i i don't i, but I don't, don't feel- think he
1: necessarily sees it as the easy route you know like I, I think like he's again he, he's naive and and he he sees it as like a thing that you just have to follow you have to learn the steps and you have to follow the steps and and, and he does that you, you know he it's or his, his approach is simple but i don't know that it is necessarily lazy it's cheesy
3: yeah, <laughs> but it's easy though. I mean, it all comes very e- it all, all comes very easy for Donald mm-hmm. because again, yeah. he's not thinking that such a thing through. He would never consider adapting the Orchid Thief, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. He would not know it. That that's not a commercial project. That's nothing that he needs to that he has the the intellect or the ambition to to turn his brain toward. Um, and it would be and it and to Charlie, it's that it's that path through life that he is that he is sort of stubbornly resisting the 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 easier path where he could write a screenplay by by numbers that would make you know maybe be more sociable and happy and and uh, you know whatever he imagines the opposite of himself to be but but he's not
0: But you're you're presenting all this like it's a choice like he's holding on to some principle to be Awkward and skeevy and repressed and, and self-loathing and and incapable of just like, you know, knocking out a populist screenplay. I don't think he does have the choice to be any of that. I, I think... I don't think that this movie in any way proclaims all of these things that he is to be superior to Donald's life. I, I don't think Charlie is happier. I don't think he's more productive. I don't think he gives more to the world in any way. It really feels like, you know, the two of them together are, are basically personifications of the old question would you rather be smart or happy? you know the the smart one is miserable and the the simpler one uh has no sense of of self-reflection or self-questioning and he's much happier for it like that's what i see playing out here and i guess i feel like the ending is kind of charlie kaufman killing more or less literally that side of him right and like symbolically exercising it, and saying, you know, it's it's okay because he has finished the screenplay. Like he's come through the the long dark night of being Charlie Kaufman for at least another year or another project, and in the process, he's been able to kill off the the dumb populist side of him that could be happy and productive and and well off in the world, but. You know, as it is, you just you you make it sound like Charlie Kaufman in this movie is somehow superior to Donald Kaufman, and I just don't think the movie necessarily thinks that's true. I think Charlie, the character, thinks that that's true—that he's better than his brother. But I don't see any other evidence in the movie I think that it is. Personally.
1: <laughs> no. well, I, I, I think, and and I've I've been I've been itching to to raise this because I think it does kind of come down to whether you read Donald more as like a metaphorical, like extension of Charlie, like, a, you know, a character who only exists as a, a piece of Charlie's personality personified, or not even personality, but self, I guess, personified, or if he is a distinct, discreet, character you know that that is uh influencing the action like is he i guess is he an, an internal character and an ex or an external character like obviously within the the narrative of this movie he's an external character he interacts with the outside world but as far like thinking about him him dying or slash being exercised like in terms of the the emotion of that i think it is Potentially, really wrapped up in whether you process Donald as a as a character, an actual character, an actual
2: person.
3: Yeah, I was, I always read him as wholly internal.
2: Really, I what you mean, with it, but with, not within the context of the film, though. You don't. He's not a delusion of Char- of Charlie's, right? But he I mean, interacts is- with
0: other people. Like he
2: very clearly has a presence,
1: right? But like his purpose as a character, I guess, is like his function as a character is as as a reflection of Charlie.
3: I mean the world yeah. of the film is the process of writing the screenplay right that's the world of the film and so he exists in, in that that's an internal that is an internal realm that is the we are this movie is about the internal process of of ad, adaptation and within that within that process Donald is this thing that Charlie Kaufman the screenwriter has invented uh, as a presence within the, the world uh, within the meta world he's created I mean it's all very
0: <laughs> it's,
3: just, it's just I, I, I
0: Kaufman-esque I think
2: is the really, word that you're looking really for it's really
3: hard to like talk about whatever the, the, <laughs> I So
2: if, if what you're saying is true Scott yes. then okay. why is his name in the credits and why is the film dedicated to him <laughs> <laughs> mm.
1: because um, Charlie Kaufman wrote the film and he did do, ch- ch- check he do that from, uh, <laughs> <Keith Sips>. Checking, <laughs> check and mate from Keith Chicken check mate I don't know.
0: I think the fact that we can have this conversation is just kind of an indicator of, you know, what a what an active of- perverse genius this film is. It's fun because to some degree, we're trying to read real Charlie Kaufman's mind here in deciding exactly what or who Donald Kaufman is. But at the same time, the movie so expressly puts us inside Charlie Kaufman's mind, which is just a thing that Charlie Kaufman movies do over and over and over. I mean, he basically, I just feel like all his movies are on some level... Here's what it's like to be me. It's complicated and it sucks. Do do you see any way out of this maze? I all I see is is an ever more complicated maze. And you know, whether it's whether it's done in a, a sort of dream sphere, like I'm thinking of ending things, or an artistic sphere that's also a dream sphere like Schenectady New York. Or, you know, something here that's just kind of like a meta Hall of Mirrors. Always just this exasperation with himself and his mental processes and the barriers that he places in his way. And I think the answer is maybe all of these things. I think Donald is a manifestation of a part of his character. I think he's part of a part of Charlie Kaufman that Charlie Kaufman hates. I think he's a real actual character within this story. I think he contains multitudes. I don't know that there's a proper answer to which single one of these things is he solely because I don't think it's that simple.
2: Yeah, I mean when you say it's part of him that he hates. I don't know though cuz I don't feel like that's he has this within him. I feel like this is he this is the element of his existence that he sees others having that Dogs him in some way. I think. I think. You know. I don't think that the Charlie Coffin of the single most un- uncomfortable s- scene in the film uh, of many, I, which is in, in the scene in, in the restaurant with Judy Greer, who's the friendly waitress, who where he tries to really take the relationship further by asking her out on a date, and and is made to feel like a freak and, and treated as as a threat. I I don't know that that person is suppressing like this personality that we see in Donald so much as he is troubled by the possibility that these people have an easier time of life than in in life than he does. Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's, I, I do still think that there's the, would you rather be smart or happy dichotomy there, but there is definitely also an element of, uh, you know, why do chicks only like assholes?
2: Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, and it, and it is it is that that is a uh, uh, a way of thinking that, that is toxic in its in its own way. But I I feel like this film kind of interrogates that as well.
0: Yeah, very intelligently. I think
1: that's the Charlie side of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all the
0: Charlie side of the movie. That's <laughs> Just, that's what makes uh, it all so remarkable.
2: So there's a big question we haven't even touched on yet about the film adaptation, but we'll get to that after the break. So Susan Orlean after some initial misgivings and resistance uh agreed to let herself be, be portrayed as she is in, in this film and you uh, know has, has said it was it was hard for her but she loves the film in part because she feels like it is it works as an adaptation of The Orchid Thief, or at least it touches on a lot of the same themes. So here's the thing. Is this a successful adaptation of The Orchid Thief? The screenplay certainly says it's based on The Orchid Thief, which is, for me, the first laugh (laughs) I get watching this film, although I'm not sure it's a joke. I want to know what you think.
0: I mean, I, I know I do not think that this is a, a workable adaptation of The Orchid Thief. I think you could call it an act of like creative synthesis and self exploration inspired by The Orchid Thief. <laughs> but I mean, as I said, The Orchid Thief is, is honestly a very accessible and, and fascinating book that really spends a lot of time kind of interrogating the question of who John LaRouche is and what does it mean to have these plants that grow naturally in the wild that are considered so precious that there's like an entire industry around poaching them you know it's one thing in a way to have these questions around animals but like what is what does it mean to have somebody steal a flower from the middle of a swamp where nobody will ever see it i think that the book like explores a lot of those questions in some very interesting ways while also just delving into a particular example of humanity that's like so far off our idea of normal that he's he's just a really interesting person to kind of interrogate and explore. And I don't know how much of this movie really feels like it's exploring any of that sort of stuff. I mean, don't get me wrong. like Chris Cooper's version of John Roche is really, really interesting. But he's also not the real live version at all, any more than the Susan Orlean here is the the writer the new yorker writer uh, that we see i just i don't think fundamentally it does get at the same ideas in a, a particularly meaningful way i'm not sorry that this is the film that we have instead of a straight adaptation at all uh, but you know i th- i think if somebody actually wanted an adaptation of the orchid thief itself there would still be room to do a completely different movie that actually does say some of the same things that that book does
3: but Tasha wouldn't you say I mean again I haven't read, read the book but wouldn't you say that that's still the essential mission of the film is to is to you know however it's inspired by the Orchid thief still get at what the Orchid thief was doing at its essence like whatever feelings that it inspired you know and you see you hear it talked about in the, in the film about having you know a passion for something feeling a passion for something about the mysteries and sort of elusiveness of 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 this particular, you know, orchid, you know, all of that stuff is, is clearly important to the film and important to Kaufman and a part of the movie that we see, but it's still kind of a failure or maybe is it? Is, does it get a piece of what the, what the uh, you know, do, is it Kaufman telling you what the, what the important part of the book is for him?
0: I, yeah, I think that's exactly it. Uh, and basically, you you articulated it. You beat me to articulating what I was thinking the entire time you were asking this question, which is adapting a book does not just mean finding some ideas within it that speak to you and talking about how your life reflects those ba- values. You know, that is a a perfectly cromulent way to react to art. And again, to make something new and engaging that is your own piece of art, which I think is what is happening here. But I think to the degree that it touches on some of the ideas of The Orchid Thief, it's much more telling us how those ideas speak to Charlie Kaufman and relate to his own personal and internal issues than it is getting at anything that the book actually says.
2: That being said, we learned a lot about orchids, during it. I, I, <laughs> I leave, you know, I, I've read the book. Uh, obviously, there's much more detail in there, but but it's not like the subject of orchids and the meaning of orchids are not central and in in, in in much of this film. I mean, it is. If I didn't know that it was born of a studio actually buying the rights to the Orchid Thief and attempted to turn it into a movie, apparently at one point Jonathan Demme uh, was working on a version of it. I would have thought that the idea of adapting The Orchid Thief was itself uh, a a Charlie Kaufman joke because it it is, for all the reasons that its character points out in in the film, a kind of impossible book to adapt, as lovely as it is, and as a book, it, it doesn't. It's not an easy translation without perhaps adding some of the uh, the Hollywood, uh, uh, bring, you know, bringing it into the, the Hollywood machinery and, and turning it into something that doesn't really resemble the book Orlean wrote. Well, and to
1: sort of cannibalize uh, another one of your your questions here on on the script, Keith, I I haven't read the Orchid Thief myself, so I'm kind of going off of of your reactions here. But you know, um, as you point out in our script, Keith, like there are multiple meanings of uh, adaptation uh, going on here, including sort of an evolutionary one. And I think you know we're discussing this in terms of. Uh, adaptation, we traditionally think of film adaptation, like, you know, translating something from one medium to another. But I think we could also look at the act of adaptation here as a sort of evolutionary one of this story evolving and changing from one permutation to the next, and becoming something something different that definitely has a relationship to the original thing, but is also its own unique thing.
2: Kind of, almost a, a, a mutation in yes. some ways. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the other way, and we touched on this before, that the, the, the word comes into play is the sense that perhaps Charlie is changing. Mm-hmm. Maybe just inching toward uh, becoming a better adjusted person uh, who's still very much without you know, turning into a, a Donald Kaufman to fit into the world, becoming perhaps a, a better, or at least a better balanced version of, of Charlie Kaufman as well.
3: Well, but then of course the question then is, who cares? You know, but like, who cares about, <laughs> like, who cares what Charlie Kaufman's do? Like, it, you know, it, it, I mean, if the, the responsibility is to, you know, a, adapt this book that is meaningful to him, and in a way that, that an artist does, of interpreting it, etc. You know the conclusion of the film to to make it about the writer himself, the adapter himself, and his and the way he comes out of out of the whole process is insanely narcissistic and narrow, Mm. Um, which I don't think, which is actually don't think what this film does.
0: I no, I think it does. I think it actually <laughs> super does. And there's another word for what you're describing there, uh, Scott. And that word is masturbatory. <laughs> what do we see Charlie Kaufman doing throughout this movie, over and right, over
1: and it's over? It's and
3: over. Self, but that's just self-deprecation. I don't feel like. I don't feel like. I don't feel like.
1: This. No, I think it's thematic. I, 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 I it's agree. Very with Tasha. Much thematic. It's yeah. uh, this. This well, whole the film
3: movie. Would be worthless if it, the film would be wo- completely worthless if we thought it is, thought of it as masturbatory, though.
1: Okay, no, but he thinks of it as is I, right, I think that, it's right, but that's what I'm saying about being, his self-loathing.
3: that's what right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It, it, and that's that right. That's
1: Okay, if we can I
0: mean if we can get real real graphic here for a second. No oh, boy. De- oh, depends, let's do it.
3: It, it yeah, depends we we already got graphic before.
0: Oh no. <laughs> I, well we're we're talking we're about a talking about climax you're going to a, a lot climax of now. very <laughs> very graphic uh like sexual content. Uh-huh and that sexual content is is very deliberate and is also part of the the theme and we we watch charlie masturbating over and over to Ideas that he has of sort of idealized ideas of how he wants to relate to the world, how he wants other people to relate to him. And that is, you know, in and of itself, what this movie is, is kind of this fantasy of him struggling through this very difficult screenplay process, and coming out on the other end, not only with a Completed movie, but I think a, a pretty triumphant movie in terms of of what he ends up creating in art when you're you're talking about like if this movie is itself masturbatory it it's valueless, and I just don't think that's true. I think it's an act of pretty profound and complicated self examination which comes with a huge dose of of self-loathing and self-accusation but I don't think that's valueless like like you talk about it like it would be valueless because it isn't clearly adapting the book it's its own piece of art you know it's it's its own thing and it has value as that it has value in the same way the orchid thief has value to this film As bringing up these ideas and emotions that inspire Charlie Kaufman, this movie has value in and of itself for the way it it shows us emotions that we can all relate to. You know, we can all relate to the idea of being stuck on a project, being unhappy with ourselves about something, looking at somebody else who does what we do better than we do and wishing we were them. Like, there's no reason that it being an act of aggressive self-examination, like, reduces its value
3: no it's not but i think but i think if it were if it had wholly hijacked the, the orchid thief for that purpose if it had, if it had not really been satisfactory or engaged in the ideas of the book which i really think it does or at least from when i engage in what i imagine what i understand the book to be about you know then i think it we we, we you know it, it would be wholly narcissistic and not of not of value i think it has to be both of those things it has to be a, a, about you know, it has to be a reflection, uh, somehow, some some way, of, of Kaufman's way of of engaging with with the book in a substantive way of adapting the book before it can also have value as a work about Charlie Kaufman or a work about the artistic process.
0: Eh, I disagree. I think <laughs> you get inspiration for your art wherever you get inspiration for your art, and you know, just because you were inspired by. A stain shaped in a weird way on a wall doesn't mean you have to respect that stain or you know your your movie is valueless you know what look at of, what kind of stain at,
3: are, are we talking yeah. about yeah. Or- yeah, I, i'm talking thinking
0: about- of, I'm thinking over and over and over like throughout this whole conversation I've been thinking of the Coen brothers Barton Fink, which is another movie about the self destructive act of trying to Write a screenplay like to order, trying to let somebody else dictate what your art should be, and getting stuck with it. And I keep coming back to that image of you know the wallpaper peeling off the walls. Like,
3: but at least it's not trying to adapt, you know, Faulkner or something. It's 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 its own. It's you know, it doesn't. It's not a real. There's no real book that's being uh, uh, harbed in the making of Barton Fink. <laughs>
0: wallace fairy wrestling pitcher do we have to draw you a map
1: well there we are seeing the creation of a of another thing in adaptation like we are seeing the book being written like susan orlean is a character in in this movie in this adaptation and like it sure it's not the first adaptation i think to make the author uh, you know a, a part of the story by by any means but like Meryl Streep is in this movie a lot, you know, like there it's it's doing kind of a a split timeline thing um you know showing sort of the the writing of this article and and then book and how she falls in with Laroche and like there's a whole secondary arc uh, here that is also kind of centered on losing yourself <laughs> in in a creative process perhaps much more literally in the case of of the movie uh, Susan. So I think like in terms of you know this being you know, uh, the masturbatory on, on Kaufman's part. I think, like, w- you know, we do have to acknowledge that he does make the book and its author a big part of of this story as well. You know, he does not like turn the focus entirely away from the heart of this this story.
0: But I guess uh, what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter whether he does or not. It, I just what I'm hearing Scott say is that this movie has to reflect the book or it's valueless and I just
1: I reject that proposition. Is that what you're saying, Scott?
3: Well, I mean, I think it has to engage with the book in a substantive way.
1: and is showing the creation of that book. Not well it can't just be right exactly
3: no, I think it does. It's totally successful. I just mm-hmm. think it can't just be simply you know grist for the mill. I think I think they they're the you know the integrity and the essence of the book is something that the real Kaufman cares deeply about. In that adaptation, as a, as a living actual film, you know, in order to be successful, ha- has to you know, reflect that essence, reflect reflect that engagement. And I think it does.
0: Why? Why does it have to?
3: Because I, because what I'm saying is that it can't just be a thing that just gets thrown into the Charlie Kaufman idea fact. It can't just be grist for the mill. It has to be, you know, it is a real adaptation. It is something he wants the film. To, you know, adaptation ultimately is his version of The Orchid Thief. It is his way, this elaborate thing he's created is his way of adapting that book.
0: Sure. By turning it into grist for the mill. I What I'm no, c- no, no, keeping because coming I, back but, to. But there's okay, so much from the book. Like no, you... but, but,
3: but, but, but I mean, there is a sto- I, mean I, I, I do see a lot of scenes with, with, uh, with Meryl Streep and with Chris Cooper in this movie.
0: Sure, the fictionalized ideas of them that that go off in a very random direction, and th- we're we're seeing a fictionalized idea of the creation of the original article in the original book like i just I don't think that because he includes the idea of the creation of the book that that has anything to do with the uh, substance of the book any more than if we'd spent 20 minutes in a paper mill watching paper be made it would have to do with the substance of the book i just i what i keep coming back to is you keep you keep throwing out these absolutes like it can't just be grist for the mill or it's valueless it's narcissistic it's masturbatory whatever w- why can't it be why can't this movie be its own act of art instead of being somehow reduced in value because the idea of the orchid thief like inspired Charlie Kaufman to make this particular act of self-examination.
3: I would guess that Charlie Kaufman would say that if adaptation did not was not a good version or a, or a substantive version of the Orchid Thief that it is a failure.
0: But Scott, I don't care what imaginary Charlie calls. No, no. But I'm just, saying I'm, I'm just you, saying. I'm just saying. This is, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This at one the, point,
2: is, there's a character talks about a tattoo of an Ouroboros, which is a snake eating its own tail. <laughs> and I feel like we may have come to our own Ouroboros of an argument here. I want to move on from this particular point, but but and and but before we wind down, we should probably talk about. A key part of this film, which is it has actors in it and uh, (laughs) doing some some fine acting. Um, We can maybe breeze past Nicolas Cage a bit this week because we're going to be talking about him uh, a lot in our next episode. But you know, from you know top to bottom, you know even the smaller roles are played by. People that were that were kind of emerging at the time, like Maggie Gyllenhaal. But I think one of my favorite performances in this film is is Brian Cox as Robert oh McKee. My God, mm-hmm. sure, uh, yeah. a, a character who is treated, you know, with a good deal more nuance than just the pure, you know, devil of uh, hacky screenwriting that Charlie Kaufman regards him as at the beginning of the film.
3: For sure, I mean, and I, I mean, that scene at the bar with him is one of the, my favorite scenes of the whole movie. I thought, I think all of that is great, and it, it's a, all very substantial. I mean, what that character is saying about, well, how life works, how life is full of drama, and, uh, and also about just the viability of a piece of writing about how movies work you know about how drama works it's all very relevant and it's and then it's all very funny when he, when you what he talks about the deus machina and uh, you better not have one of those in there and he includes what i mean that later that's 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 all good stuff i love that performance
0: his confidence is also very compelling i mean the the screenplay is i think up until the point where you see brian cox very dismissive of robert mckee's method mm-hmm. and and his classes and anybody who would take them And then you see him in performance and he's just he's so electric. He's so convincing. And when Charlie Coffin gets up and gives his like awkward stumbling, essentially saying, well, will you fix my screenplay? And Cox just slaps him down. It kind of feels like, you know, you've been you've been waiting for somebody to do this the whole film. You know, you've been waiting for somebody to tell Woody Allen, go to therapy and get over yourself, dude after just like listening to him stumble through his neuroses for 20 films in a row. And here it's just kind of the same thing. It's like, no, this guy does actually have a lot of answers. And most of those answers are, what the hell are you writing a film about if you don't think things happen in real life.
2: Yeah. That's part of why I think the, not to, not to move away from the performances again, but, but well, the third act is so tough to pin down because obviously it is a opening the gates to all these things that he said he would never do in a screenplay, uh, many of which are taken from McKee's teachings, but it, there's also a certain amount of respect to them. I mean, I, I keep going back to Donald's, you know, poignant, Reminiscence of, of 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 high school life, and it's like, you know, this is straight out of the Mckee playbook, and yet, you know, I'm falling for it because you know, acting works, and 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 screenwriting traditions or screenwriting principles, I'm sorry, not rules, uh, <laughs> are frequently employed because for you know for a reason.
1: Uh, and I mean, it's uh, no great statement to say like Meryl Streep is great in this, but I think that yes. like that character is. As crucial, if not more in terms of making the third act shift work in relationship to how that character has been the rest of the movie. Like there is a reveal, like we learned something about this character that like changes our perception of her, but the performance remains consistent. Um, I mean, maybe it gets a little more uh, overt in in some respects in the, in the third act uh, it, because it has to. But I think like that transition. One of my favorite scenes uh, in in the film is the the dial tone. Uh, you know, sort of her, her. You know, scene. You know, it's 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 a great drug scene. You know, like like in uh, we'll maybe we'll talk about drug scenes more next week with with the the, the other move, movie. But if we don't like being able to channel fascination as an experience is is a, an interesting challenge I think as, as as an actor and she really sells it I, I love the the dial tone thing but just the whole sort of her aura in the hotel room I think is where that shift clicks you know I don't think it works without that
0: I think in the same sort of way chris cooper's Performance here, like I, I always love to see Chris Cooper in a movie in a role. He is just so multifaceted and talented. But here, the movie kind of requires him to go from being this weird, self-absorbed, like self-important hick dolt to a horticultural expert who's a genius in the field. To a very sad and lonely person who kind of covers up a lot of what's going on in his emotional life via his affect to somebody who's basically just sort of a a tool of a much more, of a much stronger personality. And he shifts through all of these changes, I think, without losing the central chord that holds that character together and makes it clear that he can be all of these things. I
2: absolutely love his performance here. Academy Award worthy, one yeah. might even say.
1: <laughs> one might well. <laughs> he, he won for this? Yeah, the, I, ol- the only one, right? Like the three mm-hmm. of them were nominated, but I think only Cooper won.
3: Mm, yeah, well-deserved.
1: Good recognition.
3: Yeah. I mean, there it is, that is a dynamic character. I mean, that is a character who shifts in Susan Orlean's eyes and in, in our eyes, you know, even from the whole... Hick thing is explain. You know, you think, oh, this is this guy with his, you know, with no front teeth, and then you kind of find out why he did not have them, and it's uh, there's a much different uh, expect. Sort of defies whatever your expectations were or assumptions were. I guess at the beginning of the of the movie, but um, he's good, and I and I do I I think Streep, I, I just love her in this mode. I think she's like the more you know, kind of naturalistic her performance mm-hmm. performances are, the the more I respond to them. And and here she just seems so relaxed and kind of subtle and present and you know not not mannered in a way that some of her performances can be i just i think it's a really really nice piece of work
0: i just also want to shout out like the, a lot of the the small roles in this are amazing i love the fact that katherine keener turns up as herself <laughs> uh-huh. for one one tiny cameo uh for charlie to be Blown away by, but uh Kara Seymour, who I recognize mostly from American Psycho as the woman who Charlie is taken with and just can't bring himself to seal a deal with, yeah, Genevieve was talking about selling the idea of fascination and how difficult that is. I think that Kara Seymour kind of sells the idea mm. of having a having a crush on a character but not being the willing to be the one that goes forward with it. And just in every scene, she just kind of feels like I'm just waiting for him to kiss me. Like, will that ever happen? Because until he makes the move, I can't make the move, which is a very traditional role for a woman to be in, in a film, but she makes it sympathetic in a way that, that doesn't feel weak. Like she's waiting for some sign and she's radiating, I care about you and I would like you to kiss me. She just can't make herself make the first move any more than he can. And we can just so clearly see the lines that divide them. And it's mostly because of her acting, because of her performance here.
2: I think Radiant's the right word. She's really good in this film. And Seaward and just has range. I mean, she's been in a ton of stuff. I think one reason we don't necessarily think of her, we'll have a lot of strong associations. I think I think she's just really... Kind of disappears into roles. Like I don't, I don't know if anyone else watched the Nick, but she's uh, Sister Harriet, the sort of like uh, short-tempered nun in that, you know, which is very different from certainly very different from the sex worker character in in *American Psycho* and and the character she plays here. She's quite good.
3: can, Can I say something that I just thought about now, which is that have we in this entire conversation? mention the name of the director of this film spike jones isn't
2: <laughs> Yeah, uh, we probably should. i mean
3: i think that kind of says it all in a way right in terms of uh, J- jones's approach which is you know not that, not precisely the same approach as being john malkovich but the same spirit and that that it is about him thinking of how best of a platform can i provide for this screenplay Right, which is not really something a directors really think about that often. They're you, know, they're the ones that are the art artists. The screenplay is grist for their mill, right? <laughs> uh, and, and I and I don't feel like that's the case with this or being John Malkovich. And I think, but I think there are some some you know really nice subtle touches that Jones brings to this work. I mean, the foremost being just the unadorned look of the of, of the movie. Uh, even you know, it's just I think that it's sheer kind of lack of obvious stylization is, is a huge point in its favor.
1: What about all that trick photography, though? <laughs> What's, that's it? that's all you know. You
3: know what I mean. Even that's even that's kind of uh uh.
1: No, uh, no, I am just pointing out that that's one artisanal. of the, that's yeah. But that, that's that's just another Donald line too. You know, like how are you gonna do that trick oh, photography? Right. You know, <laughs>
3: <laughs> it's there, and I, and I just and I also just the way he the way they he incorporates the footage of the making of being John Malkovich into the movie, and it's just that's also seamless and clever. I think he does really well. He he and Coffin are really good collaborators here in, in, in uh, Malkovich.
2: I cannot yeah. believe he hasn't made a movie since her. I know. Well, I mean, he's been working on all those Jackass projects, but but, uh, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it is. It, and I think, you know, his videos obviously have a lot of visual flair to them. And I think that reasserts itself with where the wild things are and with her, which are are non Kaufman screenplays, but yeah, he does do a good job of, of, of as you say, kind of getting out of the way uh, and then doing what he needs to do to let the screenplay do its work. He's good with actors too. I mean, uh, you know, th- that's not not just true here. I mean, from from being John Malkovich on, he's really, you know, these are well acted films. Yeah. Well, on that note, speaking of acting, there's lots more acting to talk about, including the performance of one. Uh, Nicolas Cage, you know, or, that, or that's, two
0: Nicolas Cages.
2: <laughs> or, you know, if you want to talk four. about both movies at once, four Nicolas Cages. That's for next week. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this discussion, acting, orchids, screenwriting. <laughs> Um. whatever uh, <laughs> anything else in the world of film uh, outside the scope of this film too email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net if you want to share any responses with us and other listeners we'll be back in a minute with a preview of our next episode And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll compare Adaptation to The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, a film directed by Tom Gormican and written by Gormican and Kevin Etten. Shades of Adaptation, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, features a frequently unflattering turn from star Nicolas Cage. Only this time, he's playing himself. Look for that episode next Tuesday on your podcast of choice for ad-free versions of the podcast and extra content, including the letters from other listeners. Find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're eager to answer your feedback on Feedback Friday. You can find us at nextpictureshow.net and on Twitter at, at nextpicturepod if you want to keep track of when new episodes drop. Until next week, let's fade out. Cue some dramatic music, then we'll fade in next week for another Cage-centric Hall of Mirrors.